Dispensationalism says that God has dispensed his grace to different people in different ways at different times. But isn't that fundamentally a rejection of Jesus Christ? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Much of the church has adopted a part of dispensational theology, which is the pre-trib that comes from you know, people like Tim LaHaye and like you know, Schofield, where they're looking and, and saying that this is what's going to happen in the future. And they're saying that based on their understanding of what what happened in the past and how to how to deal with the word of God. And so since so much of the, you know, there is a classic uh, pre-trib eschatology that's very different, but the, the one that most of the church has adopted has come from these roots. And so it's probably worthwhile to understanding, understand what the roots of dispensationalism is. So, so what is dispensational theology? So, I mean, when you think about dispensationalism, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's a it's a framework for looking at scripture in its in its entirety. You know, I mean, it it is you know, and it's it's not it's not necessarily a systematic theology, but it's a it is a way of saying if you look across the entirety of scripture, what is God doing? What is the purpose of God doing? What is why is He doing it? How do you think about scripture as a whole? And so, it is a it is a framework for looking at the entirety of scripture. Maybe you know. May not be a systematic theology, but it is a systematic hermeneutic. Right. It is saying here's how you should read scripture. And, and every you know, and it's not wrong to have a framework. It's not wrong to come up with a framework. You, in fact, to look at scripture, you have to start putting things into a logical structure in your mind. I mean, and if you look at like Schofield's notes, he says a dispensation is a period of time in which man is tested in his obedience against a special revelation from God, and. So dispensationalism is named after these dispensations. And in the end, so I mean, and it's important when you have something, what it's named on and what it's based on, what scripture is saying, I mean, what not scripture is saying, what dispensationalism is saying is that you should look at scripture from the perspective of how God has tested man at different times in different periods of the world. And that is the basis for which you should use to understand the totality of scripture. And that's a pretty problematic place to start in a lot of ways because it's a very man-centered view of the Word of God. And even though they'll say the point of all this is to glorify God, the whole framework is really built around God's testing of man in different areas. And while these dispensations that they talk about, there are things about them that are true. There are aspects of them that are true. There are things that did happen. And even sometimes the testing that they're talking about is legitimate it's not the point of what God's doing in the world. It's not, not the point of what God is doing in the totality of Scripture. And so when you look at dispensationalism, you really need to come at it from this perspective of it's named a certain thing because it's focusing on that thing. And do dispensations define Scripture in its entirety and what God is doing in the world? Or is there something bigger going on? And that's really kind of what we're going to discuss tonight, I think, in a lot of ways. I think one of the things that when you, you look at it is – that you know, we did an episode on limited atonement to say that we're limiting the atonement because we want to just talk about men. And the reality is the atonement had broader application than that. Dispensationalism basically says that the whole focus of what God is doing in the world is men. It's right. not God. 
it's men. It's about the salvation of men, the means of salvation of men. And so what they've done is they've they've truncated what God is doing in the world to make it just about men. And that causes real problems. It causes real problems in interpretation of Scripture. It also causes real problems because if you want to force everything into this is about men being saved, it gives a really false view of some of these things. And if you want to contrast that with a different view that we would, that would be closer to what we would maybe describe it as holding would be like something like covenant theology, which doesn't even, it, you know, you would say oh, somebody might go, aha, covenant between God and man. So it's still the same thing. No, we're even talking about covenant theology where you look at the beginning is a covenant between God and himself that God is going to do something in the world to glorify himself and that that frames the totality of the view and that there are other covenants, but all of those covenants go back to pointing towards God and what he is doing in the world and the desire of God to glorify himself through specific means. And so there is this part of it where, I mean, if you're even just looking at something from a logical structure, it really does matter where you begin. It really does matter what you're focusing on. And all of these things kind of play in, even if you're talking about the truth of specific aspects, the structure of it, and what you're, you know, it, it, you have to start with something that captures, that can encapsulate what God is actually doing in the world. And if you don't, you're going to have a skewed view just from the very beginning. And, and I, I'm happy we're doing this conversation because, like you mentioned at the beginning, most of, most of our contact with dispensationalism is in terms of eschatology. That's how right. most of us think about it, dispensationalism, and unless you're, say, a seminary student or you've read certain books about it, most people aren't really that deep into dispensationalism. But, you know, between you, me, and our listeners, when you get to the, the eschatology, it's pretty wacky. But how do you get to the point where you have such a wacky view of history unless you start with, uh, oh, here's how God's working in the world, and you're off there? You know, just like some of these sects that you go off and you look at what does Mormons do and what do they believe or what do Jehovah Witnesses believe. I mean, if you're in there, you actually know. Because I know of people that have gone to dispensational churches that are not just dispensational in terms of eschatology, where there's a lot of Southern Baptist churches that are dispensational in terms of eschatology, for instance. But most of them aren't dispensational. But there are denominations that are dispensational that go, why in the world would you ever read any verse before Acts 2.32? Because none of them apply. Why would you read them? And so, I mean, there are churches that the people in those churches, they absolutely know the dispensations. And they absolutely know that, you know, and it's a very false view of Scripture because God says it was all given to us. It's all profitable. But yet they're told that these dispensations really matter, that they have to divide the word, that they have to throw away words because they don't apply to you. And so I've, I've definitely met people that, that they understand it because that's the, the false doctrines that they're swimming in. I mean, I'll out myself. I grew up very dispensational. You know, my early memories of church, you know, my, my dad was a, either an associate pastor or a pastor most of my life. By the time he was a pastor, he wasn't that fundamentally interested in, in like really the deep theology of dispensationalism for the most part. But in my early, early years, I remember, I mean, our church would have, uh, we'd have prophecy conferences every year. We'd have somebody come in. I mean, there would be diagrams with, you know, and they would change every year based on what was going on but in that, the world. Was that about eschatology or was that even about the earlier dispensations? Well, it was, so, I mean, it was, it was all of it. But I mean, a lot of times it was eschatology, but in the end, I mean, it was, it was, 
it was pushing those, you know, you'd go and you look at the earlier dispensations and you study these things. You'd study the Old Testament for the big things like the Ten Commandments and, and things like that. But you also got the pictures of what God was doing in the world. And I mean, so I, I you know, I had books by Dwight Pentecost and I had, you know, I would read some things from, you know, Dallas Theological Seminary kind of did, they did a real cleanup of dispensationalism. You know, they would kind of go back through and there were some you know, really crufty bits like T.B. Baines and some other ones had kind of come up with in the beginning, and they kind of knocked the hard edges off. But in the end, you could never, you could never fix the problem that the view was starting in the wrong place. And I mean, I remember the when I basically one year I just decided I'm going to try to rebuild it from scratch. I'm going to not going to start with any books, and I'm just going to go to the Bible and say, can I come up with dispensationalism? And I remember just being. I couldn't find a starting point. And I remember that was really, I didn't know what I believed at that point as far as eschatology went or the right way to structure things, but I knew this doesn't work. I can't make this work. Are we doing true confessions? Because my story is pretty similar in a sense that like I was coming at it from the eschatology side, reading books in eschatology. And I remember uh, J. Vernon McGee and I was reading and he, it was the first time I actually read anybody who said, oh, there's other views other than a pre-trib, pre-mill kind of, of view. And he said, oh, but you have to reject those views because, um, you know, that according to what those views say, if there are certain things that the prophets say had already been fulfilled, then, well, a prophecy it's fulfilled is completely meaningless for us. And therefore, that's why you have to reject. And I just looked at that, and I thought, I don't know what I believe anymore, but it's not that, because that just makes no sense. And it's very clear from Scripture that it's all been given, and it's all profitable. I mean, that's that's explicit, right, in Second Timothy 3. So how do you turn around and go, it's not profitable anymore, but it, it's it, not useful? T-R-O-F-I-T-A-B-L. But, but it's, <laughs> you see what that kind of it grabs at. It's like, well, the point of God saying something was to make it useful for men. And But when you read, say, if you read Matthew with an open set of eyes, the book of Matthew is, there's one way to say it. It's like, oh, this is a bunch of fulfilled prophecy, but that's not how Matthew presents it. Matthew presents no. it as God said something and it happened. God is not a liar. Matthew is really presenting fulfilled prophecy as a glorification of God. Or where the dispensational ends up going is that they would even, you know, a lot of them would hold that like during the time where you have the Mosaic law that you were saved by the sacrifices. Well, but that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what it teaches at all. In John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so you can't take those, those animals and think that the people sacrificing those animals, that somehow that meant that there was any reconciliation to the Father. That wasn't a different dispensation of grace. That is not the right way to look at it. That's fundamentally a rejection of Jesus Christ as being the only way. And you can see throughout Scripture, there's this pattern or this recurring pattern where God comes back later and goes, "The Ark that was Christ." You know, the the you know, Abraham he had faith. You have to have faith like Abraham, right? In Romans. And so this idea that somehow you can parse it and you can split it up into these pieces, it, it just doesn't match how the scripture is actually handled. So, so just to – I want to slow down some of the things you were saying there. When you talk about, say, the animals, uh, sacrificing the animals as a means of grace or a means to obtain grace, 
are are you saying that according to dispensational theology, that was the way that God was working there, and that's yeah. that's an an instance of what a dispensation is, right? Because after the rapture, it's not the same faith in Christ that you're saved by, right? I mean, the the dispensation of grace works differently at different dispensations, and so it it really matters. I mean, it really. It really has this effect that it's creating a different truth. It's creating a different, a different means of salvation. It's creating a different path. And so these things have real problems. And they can say, well, it's, it's, it's effectualized by Christ. But that's not – I mean, it, the person who was sacrificing, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, they could have sacrificed properly, and that wouldn't make them right with God. It's just not how it works. Yes, those who were right with God, they would obey. But that's just obedience. That's, but the dispensational view is very works-based. I mean, it is very much you do these things. In this time, you have to do these things in order to be saved. And we should say this before we get too far in because I'm sure – I mean, today, probably one of the most well-known dispensationalists in, you know, in, like, in circles that we would travel in would be John MacArthur. And there are going to be people out there who are going to be like seething, going, John MacArthur does not believe that you could be saved in different ways at different times. And that's generally true. I mean, we're not, we are not trying to attribute to him that specific view. And you, but part of it is dispensationalism is such a young, such a young theology that it's changed a lot over the 120, you know, 30 years that it's been around. You know, 1820, it's been around 200 okay, years. 200 years. I mean, so it's, it's, it's changed a lot over those 200 years. It's changed. John MacArthur kind of has changed it a good bit in the last, just during his career where he's made a lot of changes to it and modifications to it. But he's not even free of some of the baggage that comes along with it. I mean, like you're talking about after the, the rapture. I mean, he has to do some juggling to handle those things. And so... I mean, just be really aware. I mean, there are still a lot of people in the United States who grew up being taught dispensationalism that's very different from what John MacArthur teaches, and they still hold to it. And those divisions and wrong thoughts about how Scripture is used, they still exist, and John MacArthur is not completely free of those problems either. And part of the, the issue is not so much because I would argue that John MacArthur doesn't hold to much dispensationalism except for eschatology. Right. And the reality is I think there's a lot of churches that hold to that. I mean, I went to a church that would have held to a, a dispensational eschatology, and they would have laughed at dispensationalism. But what you have to do is you have to connect the dots. I mean, dispensational eschatology came from dispensationalism. Right. And so I wouldn't even consider John MacArthur to be dispensational. Right. I would consider him to hold to a dispensational eschatology, but he would just say he holds to pre-trib. Well, guess what? What did that come from? And it's useful going back and saying, how are they thinking about Scripture to get to the point where they could come up with this? Right. Because it actually drove it. And even though people don't understand the theology that got to there, they're accepting the the conclusions of that theology without understanding what it took to get there. Because if they if you went to John MacArthur and said, you understand this is what it took to get there, he'd go, no, I don't believe that. And so I think it's important to look at what dispensationalism is rather than to the people that are holding to dispensational eschatology because there's a lot of those that are not dispensational in the sense of the theology that drove them to come to this conclusion. Everybody at some point, if you're, if you're, if you're a faithful Christian or even if you're just somebody who's trying to figure things out, you connect dots. I mean, there, you, have, you come up with little th- – 
you see certain things and they stick up like a, you know, they're, they're like, they're like a, a splinter sticking up and you it's not, and you're trying to figure out how does this make sense? How do I work through this? And there's points where you come up with things in your mind that reconcile those issues for you. And so, I mean, it's, it's very disingenuous to suggest that people don't do that. And people who want to pretend like there's no problems, it's just not the reality. So if you, if you want to, to look at dispensationalism on their own terms, their key verse, their, their proof text would be Second Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the reason that this is a key text for them is in that last phrase about rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's where they're going to be building out dispensations from, is that, that the rightly dividing is looking back mostly through your Old Testament and then in the New Testament and then in Revelation and then figuring out where you're supposed to cut the lines, where you're supposed to divide it and say, this is how God was working with these people in this time and then this is where things change. This was a pivot point and now he started working with people differently at this time and so on. And rightly dividing it is figuring all that out. How many dispensations are there? What's the, what's the lines between them? And, and so this is where they really go for something like that. And then a lot of times, I mean, they literally divide the word. They go, starting at this verse, this is when this is when Gentiles were brought in. So that's the verse that you start at. You do not read anything before that. And you do not read anything after Christ returns. Because when the Great Tribulation, that hasn't happened yet. So you cut it off there. And those are the only verses you're allowed to read. Any other verses do not apply to you and they're not to be read. I mean, some dispensationalists, they go that far because they're saying it is you're supposed to be dividing it. You're supposed to be making sure that you throw away the parts that don't apply to you. And, and no matter what, what you end up having is, is like you talked about, even if it's not a systematic theology, it is a systematic hermeneutic, is this ends up being, you know, dispensationalists will say they hold to a literal reading of Scripture. And the, and the most common thing I'll hear from people when I talk to you about, you know, about dispensationalism, they'll go, you spiritualize everything. You spiritualize away all these literal things. But consistently, I mean, the one thing that dispensationalism cannot abide is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Interpreting Scripture the same way that God uses Scripture. You know, when God says, this is how I interpreted prophecies, and then this is how you should interpret these prophecies later, no, you cannot follow after. You have to interpret them literally, even if God did not interpret them literally, even if God says, when I referenced the way I read it, was not literal. And there's a real problem with what you mean by literal, with what you mean by these things, and you... you if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, you're going to not be able to arrive at dispensationalism. And the problem with even with dispensationalism is, for instance, in Romans 2, Paul quotes from Genesis, and he quotes from the dispensation about Abraham being established with the promises. Well, that's a different dispensation. So how can Paul quote from a different dispensation if that dispensation isn't even supposed to be read anymore because it doesn't have anything to do with it? And this is, this is a consistent handling of Scripture by the by the apostles is that they're they're looking and they're saying well you know psalm 110 the lord said to my lord look at that that means this is happening and they're going well they shouldn't be doing that well you're reject you're according to their hermeneutic the people who violate their hermeneutic all the time are the the writers of scripture they're the ones who are violating their hermeneutic so their hermeneutic is is very much an arbitrary hermeneutic that that they act like it's systematic, 
but yet in the end they twist it to match the scripture the way they want to match it. And I mean, in fairness to dispensationalism, I wouldn't no. say <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> say that the majority of them are like, oh no, you should never read those other sections. Not today. I mean, you know, like you, you, pure you think dispensationalism, about, that's where it came from pretty much. Yeah, but you think about like your Dallas people that are you know, the, you've got your, you know, even the thing I was referencing, it was J. Vernon McGee's, uh, uh, what was it, Talk Through the Bible or Walk Through the Bible. One of them was his book. One of them was his radio program. I can't remember which it was. But it's a, you know, it's a, a commentary on the entirety of Scripture. You know, there, a lot of the stuff that you have is, is well, let's figure out how you understand those Old Testament things. Not that they apply anymore, but you have to figure out what was going on then. And, but and I would even say that J. Vernon McGee was not not a classic. I mean, he was not one of the people that were driving dispensationalism. He was just just adopting parts of it without thinking through what it meant. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people like John MacArthur, like J. Vernon McGee, who are being very inconsistent in the the es or the the hermeneutic that produces the eschatology, and they love the eschatology, and they don't care about any of the other stuff about how it got there. As opposed to you really have to say this is how they're saying to handle scripture and and it matters but if you have a broken hermeneutic is it possible to apply it consistently no and even when you say they don't care about looking it up this is always true of people there are always times where you have more pressing issues and you have to choose what to care about we're not even like necessarily always knocking them for making those decisions we're just saying it has impacts. And and there are things I have not considered in my theology that are going to change as you go down and as you realize you go, this affects this and this affects this. And there are things that in my lifetime, I'm not going to spend time focusing on. We're actually arguing, though, that these things do matter. And we think they matter more than they think they do. But we're not necessarily going, it's evil that they haven't considered this. And that's, and that's, that's important. Right, and it is important because you look at everybody, they have the issues that they need to deal with. The problem is that the church has adopted a lot of things without actually considering what the roots of those things are. And those roots really matter because a lot of times those roots are fundamental rejections of aspects of God, which means that Satan has really had an effect on the church because he's misled people. He's caused false teachers to come in, and the church hasn't gone, wait a second, why have we adopted this pre-trib eschatology, when if you look at where it comes from, you go, well, of course that's ridiculous. And the people who adopt it, most of them would say, of course it's ridiculous, but yet they still adopted it. And so it's a real problem when and the, the core problem is people don't think systematically. They don't think and say these things matter. They just, you know, we have the smorgasbord of Christianity. You pick whatever doctrines that you want. I mean, one of the most popular systematic eschatology is totally non-systematic. It's basically, here's here's four different views of creation. Pick the one you like. Here's four different views, five different views of using tongues. Pick the one you like. I mean, this is where the church is. And that's not how God says that we're supposed to be handling the word. It's not how God says we're supposed to be dealing with the word. And so it's a rejection of logic in the church that's causing the problem. So part of what they're doing is there are different dispensations in the sense that God is doing different things in the world at different times. But the question is, what is he doing? In other words, is he saying that there's a different administration of grace at these different times? 
Or is he saying, I'm trying to show something to man that causes my glory to be seen, that causes the, the necessity of the covenant of grace to be seen, the necessity of Christ to be seen? And I think that's the fundamental difference in view between the dispensational view of, of dispensations and the covenantal view of dispensations is that in the one you're saying, what is God doing at these different times so that we understand more about God because the focus is on God versus what is God doing with his people at these times to call them to salvation, to call them to, to administer grace. As well as I would say from the, in the covenantal view, when you look at what's called, we're going to at some point, we'll go through the different dispensations. They're not as clean or as neat. I mean, like where they have like during Abraham, it was called the dispensation of promise. Well, guess what? There's multiple things happening. There are things that started there that are continuing on now. There were things that started at Adam that continued on. Th you know what I mean? And so they've got them in these kind of neat categories. That, and, and they even admit they're not exactly that neat. But I mean, they're even their description. Well, one thing they is, just, is they argue. Some people say right. there's 23 dispensations. Right. Others say eight. Some say 15. Some say right. four. Some say, I mean, but it's all over the place. Up, but they don't line up in the way that. They just they're they're much more complicated than the way they're describing them. And part of the the reason they're more complicated is because the way the writers of scripture do it, they're they're quoting from what they would say are different dispensations. Well, why are they quoting from that? Why does that make any sense? Because if the prophecy is fulfilled, why talk about that prophecy? Right. So when we when you talk about it from a covenantal perspective, what you're not saying is that there are these bright lines that are happening where God all of a sudden is dealing with people in different ways, where the focus is on the people. What you're saying is that over time, God is just progressively revealing more about himself and his plan for history. And that plan was actually established with a covenant that God made with himself in the person of the Trinity. And to some extent, what dispensationalism dispensationalism is saying is that once you leave that dispensation, that that dispensation doesn't mean anything, as opposed to what covenantal view is saying is that every time God is giving more revelation, you're building up more and more revelation. And more and more, and I would argue that the primary thing that the, the progressive revelation is doing is you're building up more and more understanding of the need for Christ and that why Christ has to be, you know, the 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 one who sheds his blood to seal the new covenant. And so in the one case, it's kind of like you move off of this and you move to this. The other case, it's God keeps revealing more and more things. And those covenants are significant points in time where God is reordering the world in real ways, right? It's not like the world isn't being reordered, but he's reordering it to show something about himself and something about our need for Christ rather than reordering it so that his grace is different because his grace is the same. You're only saved by faith in Christ. You're only saved in faith in the Messiah. That's how any time at any place, that's the only means of salvation. And so fundamentally, there's a shift in the efficacy of the covenant in the sense that if the covenant was, the efficacy of the covenant was a means of giving grace to men, which is the dispensational view, then certain ones have no efficacy. There's no reason to enter into that covenant. Right? We don't really see people being saved after Adam, after the fall, right? It's, it's eight people on, on the ark with Noah. So, so when you say a means of grace, you're specifically meaning a means of salvific grace? Yes. Okay. Yes, means of salvific grace. And so then all of a sudden that dispensation means nothing. But if what you're trying to show is the, the helplessness of man without God, 
without him putting constraints in the world, without him, then all of a sudden it means a whole bunch of things that tell us things about ourselves. It should tell us things about how we raise our children. It should tell us things about all kinds of things, how we need to deal with civil magistrate, because the nature of man is to be filled with violence. That's the nature of man. And so that's what God teaches us. So if the covenant was just to save people, then it was God messed up. It didn't work. If it is to reveal things about himself, it completely worked the way it was supposed to. So part of it is, it is really about the success of what God is doing. Because in dispensationalism, they say they failed, they failed, they failed, they failed. They being the persons of God, that God is a failure. He's saying that God is a failure in this case, because right now in the dispensation of grace, things are going to get worse and worse, which means God's a failure. And that's the dispensational view is that the, the covenants were not effective, as opposed to the biblical view is they did exactly what God wanted them to do, which is what God says in Romans 8 and 9, is that they did exactly what God wanted them to do. Not all of Israel is of Israel. But yet that also has to be rejected by dispensationalism. I get what you're saying about the dispensations. But what's the right way to think? I mean, how do you think about covenants? How should we think about covenants in the sense of how should we think about that as framing all of Scripture? How should you know? I mean, I mean, because I, I get what you're saying, but I mean, you say that all of all of Israel is not Israel, and yet there was a time when it seemed like it mattered who was Israel and not Israel in a physical sense. Except in a physical sense, it didn't matter even then, right? Because when you have Elijah that feeds the widow, when you have Elisha feed a widow, neither of them are Israelites. You have Naaman. You have all these people, and so who are the neither of them that are Israelites? The widows. The two widows. The two widows. When they look at it, they go, "Well, in that time, Israel was the the offspring of Israel of Jacob," but that's not what God was saying. God was very clear when He goes back in the New Covenant, and He says, "No, it wasn't just the people of Israel. Not all of Israel is of Israel, because otherwise." The covenant with Israel was a failure, which is what he says in Romans 8, which is why Paul then goes, you know, no, Paul was, or God did not mess up. He was successful because not all of Israel is of Israel. Because throughout the, the old covenant, Israel was always a picture of the true Israel. The true Israel is those who have faith. And so, but that's not how dispensationalism looks at it, which is why it has to come that after the period of grace, we come back and we flip around and then all of a sudden Israel is Israel again. And they're the people of God and the dispensation is that you're a child of, of Jacob. Well, the reason that's significant is they can't accept that the previous dispensation was efficacious. As opposed to we should be saying God never fails. And that's really important to start with. God never fails. Because they hold God fails all the time, that God's unsuccessful in what he's trying to do all the time, which is a really twisted view of God. And I'm not saying that they think through it because you're going to go, oh, but John MacArthur doesn't think that. In a way, he does, because he says the church can't succeed, that Israel has to come back, because it can't, because otherwise it would be unfair to Israel. But none of them say out loud, God fails. Right, right, but that's what they believe. God says, I sent power from on high, right? That, that's what Jesus Christ said when he sends the Holy Spirit, is I'm sending power so that you can succeed where the previous ones failed. 
But they're going, but the previous ones were supposed to succeed, and Paul's going in Romans 8. No, they weren't, or they would have succeeded because God never fails. And so the fundamental doctrine is God never fails, and that really looks at the efficacy of the covenant. Did the covenant accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish? And the answer is every single time, because God caused it. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God is saying, this is what I wanted to do. And we're going, or the, the natural inclination of man is to go, but why didn't he save men? Because that's not what he was trying to do. And that's where dispensationalism breaks down. It's because they're going, God was trying and couldn't fail and couldn't succeed. And the Bible goes, God succeeded in what he was trying to do. You just don't like what he was trying to do. And this is where you would say, where this really meets, the, where the rubber really meets the road on that. Like you said, they'll never say God fails, but they will say the church fails. They will say the, the church, church who is made up of people who have the Holy Spirit fails. And so God failed because right. the well, real, I mean, you connect the dots and you get back to if you're thinking logically, God has to fail. Because in the end, you have to shift it to be that the point of Jesus Christ coming wasn't to establish the church and that the church really isn't his body. I mean – you end up you end up having to have a problem with that, and there is this. So I mean, and and that's kind of what I was meaning before about the things are neat and clean. Is dispensationalism encourage dispensationalism encourages kind of episodic thinking? Is you you put this in a neat little packet? It's like an episode on TV. Things that things wrap up, and yeah, you may refer back to something that happened in the previous episode, but now you're in this next thing, and this is a ni nice, neat little package too. And each, I mean, like to the point where the church age is referred to as literally as happening in a parentheses. Right. But like the church age is there's Israel, and then the church age is completely separate, and then you're back to Israel because what happens here is literally a completely separate parentheses from what God has been doing in the rest of the world which just doesn't match with Scripture at all. And so I think it's worth it to, to go back and talk about the seven dispensations that are the ones that are most widely accepted. Like I said, some go like 23 and they go crazy. Right. But the, the ones that are most widely accepted, are they're, they're usually seven. And so it's probably worth it to look through and both go, so what were, how was it efficacious? as opposed to what's dispensationalism looking at it and saying it didn't work. And so the obvious, the first one is what's called the dispensation of innocence. In you know, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So like to look at how dispensational looks, looks Dispensationalism looks at that versus how covenantal thing looks at thinking looks at it is in dispensational you go well God said here's the means of grace just don't eat of this tree but then man messed up God gave him a rule God said here's how I'm going to dispense grace to you but man messed up so therefore the covenant failed that's the dispensational view the covenantal view is well before the foundation of the world, God said he was going to send his son. The they lamb agreed. slain before the foundation of the, the world, The lamb right? slain before the elect before the foundation of the world. He said he was going to save people. So therefore, he entered into a covenant knowing that they would violate the covenant. So 
they can't violate the covenant unless he gives a command. So he says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, knowing that that will cause, without, without God's permission, it's rebellion against God, but he knows that will cause Adam to eat. So therefore, that dispensation was to show the nature of man was to be weak, was willing to fall, would be rebellious, and God is revealing that to man through the dispensation. We're understanding things about ourselves and about the need of the covenant of grace because the covenant of grace is right there. But yet, if you look dispensationally, it didn't work. You look covenantally, and of course it worked. It worked to do exactly what it was supposed to do. It's also a really good place to start with. Hey, because the Bible starts there. Sorry. To start with pointing out that this is not, you cannot interpret this literally. God says in the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Like, and this is according to the way they would define is Adam's death was spiritual. And God meant that to be interpreted to understand that in the day he ate of it, he did die. And you have to take that in a spiritual way. You're not allowed to take it and literally, because otherwise, God's lying from the very beginning. And so there's this part, and, and there are going to be people who go, that's not fair, but I'm sorry. That is exactly it's, how you were told you cannot take. When Jesus said he's going to build a temple, and Jesus says you are a temple, they go, it can't be a spiritual temple. But in the very beginning, in the very first dispensation, he died spiritually, and you're supposed to take it that way. And you read the next chapter, and the devil's playing on this. Like, oh, no, when you eat it, you're not going to die. Right. So just be really clear. I mean, you can't. You can't hold to that hermeneutic and interpret Scripture consistently. And so if you look at some of the things that, that covenantalism says that is important from this, this dispensation, which the dispensation, God is dealing differently with his people during time, or with the world, not just with his people. And so you look at like Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I mean, this is the gospel. This is the promise of Christ. You wouldn't understand that Christ was promised, except that God entered into that covenant, entered into that dispensation. And so the dispensation is to reveal about the covenant of grace that was before the foundation of the world. And one of the things is that, yes, Satan is going to look like he has victory. And guess what? Satan's head will be crushed when he has victory, when he looks like he has victory. I mean, that's really significant for man. It's a promise that will be delivered. It's a promise that that there will be a means to destroy Satan, and and this is the, it is efficacious. It w- he had to fall for these things to come to pass. It had to, he had to fall for us to understand these things about the covenant of grace. Or another example would be the need for to be covered in Genesis three twenty one through twenty three. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand to take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so you see two things that also that we learn about this that are so significant, right? One is that you have to be covered, that you need a covering because your deeds, you're now naked you're now, it's shameful because of your sin nature, and you have to be covered. 
And that's a picture of being covered. It has to be covered by the shedding of blood, right? This is the first time that you see that it's the shedding of blood is how you see the remission of sin, how you see the covering of sin. And then also God has a better plan because he cuts people off from the tree of life. It's not that he couldn't have let us live forever as sinners. We could have lived forever as sinners, but it's a promise that there's a much better plan that God has than for us to live forever as sinners. That's why he puts the cherubim there with the with the sword that's protecting the Garden of Eden and protecting the tree of life to make sure that nobody eats from it. Not because he hates us, but because he has a promise of something better. And so when you read like, like Hebrews 11, where you have all these people and they're all hoping, they're looking forward to the greater promises of God, of the city that is built by God, it comes back to Genesis 3 and that first thing where God says, I don't want them to eat of the tree of life because you don't want them to stay in that sinful state. He's going to be glorified. He's going to glorify his people. That's that's the promise from Genesis 3. And so it wasn't ineffective, which is what dispensationalism says. It's incredibly effective. Right. And I think I mean it's really important when you talk about the angel guarding the tree of life because this is what I meant by you create these theories in your head. I remember trying to figure out why he put the angel there. Like like I mean in the sense of why didn't he why didn't he do something? Why didn't he do it in a different way? Why did? Why was he doing that? Because you know, I mean, it's he kind was of, just about saving men. Just let him eat of the tree of life, and they'd have eternal life. And so you and you see this thing, and now all of a sudden, when you're talking about the fact that it's showing that he's that he's not going to let man live in his sin forever, and this even points we're going to go forward where it talks about Noah and how long men live. He lets men live a long time with sin, and you see what happens with that. I mean, so there's this. There are all these things that actually get answered if you actually want to deal with the totality of Scripture as opposed to separating these things, isolating them, and and looking at each one as if they were failures. But instead that God is establishing his plan that he made before the foundation of the world. And each way he's revealing more of that. He's revealing that there is something greater. And so the covenants are about revelation rather than the covenants about a different dispensation of grace. So the next one they usually do is the, the dispensation of conscience. So for this, I look to Genesis 6, and this is verses 4 through 6. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. In the dispensation of conscience, they're basically saying that man comes to God by his own conscience, by his own sense of right and wrong. And again, this was a failure. The only people that came to God that way, I mean, it was better than with Adam, because zero did there. But in this, eight did, right? Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. And so they would go, it wasn't as bad of a failure as the previous one. But if you look at what's actually happening, what God is doing in the covenantal perspective is God is going, look, you leave man by himself, even if there's righteous men, right? There were giants on the earth in those those days. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, what happened is, that the children that were the righteous, those who were right with God, they didn't have any boundaries to go, we shouldn't just go after the children of men. And their children went, became children of men. They, they, 
violence and wickedness filled the earth. And so just leaving man to his own conscience without any constraint, that's not a solution to the problem. That's not a solution to make a holy people. Remember, God has always wanted a people that are holy. And so God is showing in that first dispensation, I mean, the dispensation, the second dispensation, the dispensation of conscience is that, that man's conscience is not enough. You need something more than that to cause people to come to God. His conscience just causes the whole world to be filled with evil. And there's, you can look at, because you know what's going to happen later, you can look and, I mean, one of the ways I think about this time period is you go, he didn't choose a people like in the sense of like, like he did with Israel. He didn't go, I'm going to call you by my name. I'm going to do this. He didn't do this in a deliberate way in the way he does later. He didn't come, he didn't give them his commandments like, on, they, they knew a lot of his law. I mean, they knew that you shouldn't kill. They knew you shouldn't steal. But he didn't come down and give them commandments written on stone. He didn't do this with them. And so you can see there are things that he's going to do later that constrain sin in a greater way. And you can see the result of it. And you can see what happens. And like we talked about, he didn't let man live forever. But men were living to be 900 years old. And this is the result. I mean, when we look at the world today, men's wickedness is constrained by 70 years. And there's, I mean, can you imagine what someone who sins for 900 years the level to the evil to which they could get. They'd be limited by other things, like there wasn't certain technologies in the world and other things like that. Well, we don't know what there was because but, they all died except eight. <laughs> and so, but we know that, right. I mean, we know that they their evil was great. And we know that there was very little holding back their evil. And we know that the conscience of men is not enough to hold back evil, which has real practical implications today. It's, it's the basis for which... Every government basically has multiple branches because of this. This says what happens if you don't have multiple branches of government. This is why even when there's a king, there's usually a different judicial branch, and sometimes they're paid and other things. But everybody understands this, and this goes back to the Noah's flood. If you let somebody do what's right in their own eyes, they will head towards evil. That is what the that's the nature of man. And so that dispensation, when you look at it from a covenantal perspective, it's to show the very nature of man. It's to show total depravity. That's exactly what it does. And if you look at it, you you see total depravity there, but you see where there's hope too. Because in Genesis 9, 12 through 15, it's, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I sent my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And so God goes, even though there's all this evil in the world, I'm not going to do it again. So you have a promise that God is going to do other things because obviously if he let the evil go to the same level, he's going to destroy it again because God would still be disgusted and said, why did I even create man? So you know he's going to do different things. So you have a promise that God isn't just going to leave man alone, that he actually has a plan. You also have the idea that it's the covenant between me and the earth. That his right. plan is beyond men, right. which is very anti-dispensational because dispensational says that everything is about the salvation of men because that's the focus of the world. Well, that's not what God says after the flood. He goes, the covenant's between me and the earth, right. which says that it's something beyond men. 
Right, and so we're seeing more and more revelation of the covenant of grace. And we talked about this in the atonement episode when we were quoting the verses about how the all creation groans waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And this is, you know, and here God's promising the earth, like you said, I'm not going to let this get bad again, this this bad again. And it ties towards that future promise that the, the all of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. So there's even the part of like as if creation is seeing the promise that God is making. Because otherwise, creation isn't, it doesn't make sense for creation to be groaning for this revelation. It's the sense that God is even revealing it to creation that this is coming. Right. And if you're looking at it and you're going, well, you know, you look at those verses from Romans 8. I mean, they're, they're tying back to these verses from Genesis. It's not like that you can create these nice divisions like dispensationalism wants to do. And then you also see God even says why it's not going to get as bad again. Right, because he also gives in in Genesis nine, he had said it earlier in Genesis nine, five and six. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And so now all of a sudden he goes, The way I'm going to constrain sin, because you see, just having man's conscience doesn't work. I'm now going to give man the responsibility to constrain sin of man. And so that's also the start of the next dispensation. Because the next dispensation is usually called like civil government. And this isn't the first, you, you know, you can read that. And this isn't the first time that you can say, oh, murder's wrong. Right. We know murder was wrong from Cain and Abel. All God's saying now is, here's how you deal with it. I'm, I'm giving you authority to deal with it in a particular kind of way. But the nature of the morality of it is no different. Right. Before God drove Cain out, and now he's saying man has the responsibility to deal with it. So if it's not going to be in the previous dispensation, it's, will a man's conscience constrain sin? No. Right? That's the answer to Noah's flood. Now the question is, for the next dispensation is, will the government of men constrain sin? And according to dispensationalism, it's now God's trying a new means of grace, right? Can through through human government can people be brought to salvation? Well, no, that's that's a failure. That doesn't work. Or is it that human government, God is revealing we need something far beyond human government because human government will not save man. That is not sufficient. Unto you a child is born, and the government shall be upon right. And the increase of his government shall know no right. end, right? I mean, there is a government coming that will do this, but it's going to be a, a government that starts with a spiritual beginning, a heavenly beginning. I think there could be a tendency in covenantal theology to kind of want to be doing the same thing as a dispensationalism where it's all neatly divided and there's lines and you can make a chart of all the different covenants and things. And I think if you really look at how scripture talks about covenants, that the covenant isn't like we might think the covenant is just an agreement, you know, that both sides sign on. And there's even examples in scripture where God makes covenants that are even set up like that. But there's other ones that it's like God is saying, here's the way it's going to be. Here's promises I'm going to make to you. And there's not the two-way thing. And then there's not like a flow from one to the other, you know, in a clear-cut way that we could put on a chart. You know, there's a lot of overlap. You know, there's there's a covenant with Abraham. There's also a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those are three people at three different times. And yet it's kind of all one thing. And then that's even tied right into the mosaic. So there's not these clear lines and we don't want to, we don't want to 
try to make a, a competing chart and, and run into the same problems. Right. I think that the right way to look at it is that there are, there are like, like signposts on the highway, but there's lots of like, you know, you have the, the, the mile markers, but then you also have the 10th mile markers and in covenants, there's a lot of those 10th mile markers that we don't, you know, people talk about, well, this is a Mosaic covenant. Well, which covenant is the Mosaic covenant? He goes, he enters into like five or six that he's involved with. And, you know, the Bible, when it's talking about the old covenant, it's talking about the one in Exodus 24, which is the one that Moses enters into. But Moses enters into other ones with, you know, he goes up to God and says, don't, you know, don't leave us. Well, isn't that a covenant in a sense where God says, I won't leave you? And so it's very easy to start to look and say there's a Mosaic covenant. No, there's not. There's lots of Mosaic covenants. But there's also the one that you see that God is like really moving things forward in a specific theological aspect. That the problem isn't that all you do is have human governance. The problem isn't solved by the law is also what their dispensation. So these dispensations, I would argue that they're they're like raising the big issue, but that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of other progressive revelation going on. I mean, I think in the end, what you kind of said in the beginning, and it says it in the Second Line of Baptist Confession that that it is a it's making a full discovery of the covenant of grace, and and there is this part of it where I mean, there's there's a part of it where God has God has planned in great detail, obviously what He's going to do in the world, like every breath everybody takes. Exactly. <laughs> That's the level of detail, and and there is this part of it where through these things He's 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 literally revealing these things to man. He is literally revealing to man what He's doing through all of these different covenants. And like like Joshua said, it's really easy at times to make them into something that we feel like we can control as opposed to making them being the the manifestation to us of the glory of God, of the knowledge of the glory of God. It it can be that it almost feels like you just need to know these covenants. But God says every word is breathed. Every word is God-breathed in the scriptures, and you need them all. And so they, there are mileposts that you kind of look at and you remember, right? There's things that are referenced more in the New Testament, like Abraham believing the promises of God. I mean, that there's patterns that these things are important, but that doesn't mean that him going in Abimelech and arguing about wells and the covenant that he had with Abimelech, that that's not important. That is a covenant. If you think about it, right at the flood, you have eight people who sacrificed a lot. They took a lot of risk. They separated themselves completely from society. And so you would look and say, okay, these are eight righteous people. But then what do we find out in Genesis 9, 20 through 23? And Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So here's righteous Noah who preached for 120 years. Right, He stood up against the whole culture that was filled with violence and hated him. He's building a boat when there's never been rain. The, and yet here he is, and he goes and gets drunk. So you look at like where in First John it says, you know, you know, if you say you have no sin, the truth does not abide in you. Well, we see that with Noah. You see that example of, I mean, if there's any righteous man, here's a guy who preached for 120 years. He worked on building an ark for 100 years. And then two years later, he gets drunk. Well, 
showing the nature of man, even righteous men, that we still have sin and we still have a division from God that that has to be dealt with, that has to be reconciled, because even righteous men aren't perfectly righteous. And righteousness can't produce obedience to God, can't produce a heart that desires obedience. You know, for example, Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalmuth in the land of Shinar. So, you know, you, you see this era where all of a sudden you have these very proud men who arise and are establishing kingdoms, you know, establishing things to themselves on the earth. And this is also where you get the origin of so many of the idolatrous religions that are going to be the themes of the, the rest of kind of the history of that part of the Middle East. Right. You have the, the Babylon, Babylonian and all these other things that, that come out of that, that whole thing. And so you have this dispensation because there is a dispensation that God is doing something different. He gave human governance. He gave the men the responsibility to govern. And what happened? Well, the strongest men became the most powerful and they became cruel and they sin was not constrained. Instead, they God said to scatter and fill the earth. And they said, let's all gather together at the Tower of Babel and let's build a tower and we'll sit in heaven like God. And so, again, they're going human governance is the means that God is trying to save people. Well, no. Human governance is shown to be not a means to be reconciled with God. That's not sufficient. All that does is puff up human pride. It does constrain sin. Man didn't become so evil that God went and looked at the earth and went, it's filled with violence, I'm just going to destroy it with fire. But it doesn't mean that it also actually produced people that were righteous with God. And God's introducing a form of disunity into the world as well. I mean, he is, you know, he's dividing the nations. He's, I mean, you know, man was. Because their pride is getting so, so big, right? In that, in the midst of that dispensation, to go back to what we were just talking about, God all of a sudden strikes them and confuses their language to go, you're not that big. You're not that important. And so man is scattered. And so, and so, and so in a sense, through that disunity, God causes sin to be constrained in a way as well. Very much so. But you see that civil government is not the means to constrain sin. That won't solve the sin problem in the world. Something else is needed. Human human governance is not sufficient. The next dispensation is the dispensation of promise, which usually goes from Abraham to basically when they either when the Mosaic law is given or they go into the promised land. It usually ends one of those two times. And the idea here is that this is when you have to trust in the promises of God, that that's how you're saved. The problem with that is that's how you're always saved. <laughs> that's what Hebrews 11 teaches, that you always have to have hope of eternal life. You always you have Romans 3 or Romans 2 teaches the same thing, that that's how you're declared righteous is that you have hope in eternal life. That's the promise that you have to believe in. So they say that this is the means that God uses to save people during that period. But that's not true. That's the means God uses. You have to trust the promises of God. And it's pretending that when he told Adam and Eve that that the, your, that, the, you know, that he would put enmity between the seed of Satan 
and the woman's seed, that that wasn't a promise, that that wasn't, that the promise wasn't being revealed there, that that wasn't like a really big promise that he made. That wasn't fun. You know, I mean, what is, is that seed different than Abraham's seed? You know what I mean? I mean, is there, and so there's this part of it where you have to pretend like there hasn't been promise in the world before this point. Like rainbows. <laughs> right. Or Lamech, or, you know, or like, was it uh, being told that, you know, your son, I mean, like, there was a it was a, a prophet you know about uh, about Noah being the one that would you know that God would use to deliver. I mean, there were all these things that were done that were pointed at in so many different ways. And so, yeah, what do you do? I mean, how do you you? Yes, there was a promise made here, and like you said, if you wanted to put this is one of the things is if you wanted to put like a signpost of when God refers back to the promise, He does use Abraham, and Abraham is referred to, but. God also talks about the promise being there from the beginning. And right. so it's just you you end up denying the existence of it by putting over you know undue emphasis on this point. And I mean it, it is, you know, in Genesis 15:5 and 6, God is saying this is how that you that you're declared righteous. This is this is how it's accounted to you for righteousness. And he brought him outside and said, "Now look toward heaven and count the number of stars if you are able to number them." And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he had accounted to him for righteousness. I mean, that's what the Bible says in, in, in Romans, is this is how, this is, this is the proof that it is faith by which you're saved. And the means that God administers grace, salvific grace, throughout all time, in every generation, in every dispensation, it's through faith. That's what it says in Romans, but they're all of a sudden creating these dispensations and go, that's not true here. Well, no, that is true. That is the right way to look at it. And this is a really important, significant piece of, you know, of understanding the covenant of grace. So you mentioned that, I mean, Romans says this is it. And so let's, let's look at that. Romans 4 verses 1 to 4. What then shall we say, that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. The New Testament looks at this and says, this is the way it is for us. Paul has this in the middle of an argument with his contemporaries talking about how to be saved. And he's like, look, here's what the Bible says about how Abraham was saved. This is how you're saved too. That's, it's, you know, believe God. Otherwise, you're just paying debts. And, and yeah, we were talking about before, like John MacArthur. Well, I know John MacArthur believes this. I know John MacArthur says this is true at all times and everywhere. But then his eschatology is coming from a completely different view of Scripture. And, and we really have a duty to be consistent because it really is a re rejection of salvation by faith. Because dispensationalism is saying it's different times and different ways. It's different administrations of grace. It's not all... This is the, the dispensation of promise. Well, no, they're all dispensation of promise. You have to believe the promises of God. All right, and there's this part of it where you yeah, it's really easy to trace this line of those who were saved leading up to Christ and going no one else in the world was saved, like you were talking earlier. I mean, like you were talking about with the Shunammite woman and with, I mean, then with Naaman who goes back and there, I mean, there were people 
around the world who were saved, who were not Jews, who were not descendants of Abraham, who were not, I mean, and God was, God Which was. Which is part of the argument that Paul makes in Romans 9, where he says not all of Israel is Israel. Right. He goes, there's Gentiles that are part of Israel. Right. And so, I mean, it's just, but it's just really, really important to not, to not get so focused on this one thing that you don't see what God is doing all over the world and has been doing from the beginning. An example of that is in Job uh, 19, 25, and 27, where Job is thought to be um, not an Israelite and, you know, even uh, pre-Abraham, I believe. Um, and, and he has amidst all his, uh, you know, even, even some sinful things he says, he has a testimony of faith where he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So there Job is testifying of his faith in the resurrection, his faith in uh, the Redeemer, in Christ. And, you know, you look at Hebrews 11, it has that consistent, you know, uh, testimony that these all were, uh, were walking in faith. And they, right, they, dispensationalism wants to go, now the means of grace is through Abraham and his children. Well, that has a problem with Job because Job received grace and Abimelech received grace. If you read the story about Abimelech, I think it's likely that he was saved. Abraham says, I didn't think there was any fear of God in this place. And Abimelech's like, of course there's fear of God in this place. I wasn't going to sleep with Sarah, but one of my men would have married her because I was already, right? I mean, it's like, there's this this idea that you're narrowing it down that's a false view because salvation is always by faith. But in dispensationalism, they go, now God is just saying he's just giving salvation to the Jews and to the just like he will in the future. He'll only give it to the Jews after the parenthesis. Right. And if you don't and if you do narrow it down, it's easy to get to that. If you keep it narrow the whole way through, it's easy to think of it as being this thing that can't overcome the world. You know what I mean? If if right. you, you see if you see the seed, I mean, it doesn't spread through the world in the way that it does before he pours his spirit out on the world. But even then it was it was it did spread throughout the world. There was Christianity in other places. There was I mean in Nebuchadnezzar in, was probably saved. Right. And and obviously I mean he had the witness of, of Daniel in his life, but but how many other people do you not know of who traveled in places and someone saw them and heard their words and they had the oracles of God and they speak it to them and they believe and the Holy Spirit gives them the gift of belief. And so we just, we shouldn't, it's just, it's, it's wrong to have that narrow of a view. God's giving us every reason. He's telling us I'm doing this in other places. You know, it uses the example of Sarah too, you know, Abraham's wife. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him the Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Even you read the stories about Sarah and, and Abraham telling her to say that you're my sister and not my not my wife. I mean, and yet she obeyed, and you see that that she's trusting in the promises of God. She's trusting God, and so she walks in a certain way. And that's in the Old Testament. That's in the Old Covenant. That, or not the Old Covenant. That's in that's in these pictures in this dispensation that that everybody had to trust the promises. It the promises that they're trusting are different, but they're trusting the promises. That's what faith in God produces. And like you said, there continues to be this picture of showing, like 
whereas Noah, who was a man of faith, sinned. There's pictures where we see Abraham sin, and Abraham sins in different ways, even sinning in ways that God uses his sin, like with Hagar, you know, where God, I mean, where God uses but, the sin of Abraham to continue to show the, what he is doing in the world. There's a part of it where by doing that, he shows us that he's sovereign over all things, that he shows that even though men will sin, that he'll use it for his good, that he'll use it to cause good to happen to his people. I mean, and, so, and you see these things happening even, you know, in the middle of this. So then the next uh, dispensation is usually considered the dispensation of the law, which is kind of like either from Moses or when they enter into the promised land up until um, the scattering of Israel in 70 AD. But there's, there's this idea that, that in that dispensation, in dispensationalism, they're going in that dispensation that's the dispensation of the law, that you're saved by the law, that you're saved by doing these sacrifices, that this is the means of grace that God is giving to the Israelites. And that's just blatantly false, right? I mean, Hebrews 10, 8 through 11 says, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standing, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Those sacrifices were never a means of grace. They were never a means of salvific grace to bring people to him. That was not the purpose of them. But yet in dispensationalism, they're saying they are, that the Israelites are the chosen people of God, that they're the ones that are saved, that they're the ones that are right with God because they have the sacrificial system. And that's just completely contrary to the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is it didn't work, and it wasn't supposed to work. It was supposed to show that shedding of blood was needed. It was supposed to reveal things about the covenant of grace. It was supposed to show that it was impossible to keep God's law. Yes. You know, and but but actually that's not new. And and if you want to kind of build the continuity of what God's been doing, he told Adam, fill the earth and subdue it. And you know what? Adam was really bad at that. And then Noah gets off the ark and he repeats to Noah, fill the earth and subdue it. And you know what? Noah's pretty bad at it. You get the whole Tower of Babel thing. Then he comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham a promise and Abraham believes the promise. But the promise is Hey, look at the sand, look at the stars. I'm going to make you like that. So the, the, prom, the, the commands, the law that was given to Adam and repeated to Noah, he comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to make you fulfill the law. And then you get this law that's through Moses, and it's the same picture on the one hand of it's impossible for you to do this by yourself, but there's going to be somebody who can keep it. And if you trust him, then... But, but it's all, it's, God's telling the same story throughout all this. It's not like God's, it's not, it's not episodic. It's not like God's changing from one chapter to the next and be like, all right, let's see what adventures I take the people on today. It's I've got one picture. I'm progressively opening it up so you understand more about what I'm doing. But it's the same thing that I'm doing all along. And so you have this idea of, right, that you have the, the, civil magistrate, that doesn't work. You have just promises, that doesn't work. And now if, if God just told us what to do, that would work. That's the dispensational view. But God is going, that won't work. That, like you said, I mean, the, 
they enter into the no into the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 24, where they say, "We'll obey everything that you did," and they make the golden calf immediately afterwards. It's not like this is a secret. God is showing right at the beginning of the dispensation of the law that there is no law that can make people righteous, which is of course repeated in the New Testament in Galatians 3. 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Well, they actually hold that it is the law that gives life. That is the means of salvation. Well, that's not true. That's contrary to Scripture. That's why I said it's a hermeneutical problem because they basically say, well, Galatians 3 doesn't really apply because they're in that dispensation. They were in the dispensation where they were supposed to be killing bulls and, and goats and that that would take away their sin. No, that never took away sin. The only thing that takes away sin is Jesus Christ. There's no way to the Father except through the Son. Early in the episode, we talked about one of the practical effects of dispensationalism was to produce an eschatology, and that's where you see the fruit of dispensationalism is this particular eschatology, and a lot of the rest of dispensationalism has melted away. But it's... There are some practical things that happen with the law as a result of a dispensational theology. Because this is one of those things where you can look and say, American Christians don't think the law means anything for them anymore. And the reason we don't think it means anything is because whether or not we've got the whole system out, whether or not we think we're dispensationalists, we're all the children of dispensationalists in that way. And that's why we don't think the law applies. We don't preach the law. We avoid those sections of the Old Testament in real practical ways, we don't think that what God said to Abraham about how you start to to Moses about how you structure society means anything for us anymore. And the reason we think it doesn't mean anything is we we have this idea, or at least we inherited this idea, that oh, that was about how they got saved. And thank goodness, like Paul tells us, thank goodness that we're under grace and not under the law. That's not what it. That's not what he means at all. But that's how we interpret it. We're, we're being dispensationalists when we avoid the law that way. Right, and what God says in 2 Corinthians 3, right, through Paul, is he says in the dispensation of the law, it was written on tablets of stone, and that didn't work. In the dispensation of grace, according to their terminology, it is written on the heart through the Holy Spirit, and that works. It's not that the law disappears, like they're going, well, you were saved by the law under there. It's the means of writing it, is what changes according to 2 Corinthians 3, is that the Holy Spirit writes it on your heart. It's not a different law. It's the same law, but it's written on a heart rather than on a stone because the stone just produced condemnation, so you're the sin of death to those who are dying and the sin of life to those who are living. And God is not creating a discontinuity. He's going, having an external law won't save anybody. What's required to actually be right, what, What's required to actually be walking in righteousness and holiness is you have to have a change in heart. You must be born again. You must have a heart to desire to follow after God and to obey him. And and when you read like like you, you know, you were talking about uh, David, you read Psalm one nineteen, it's clear that David had a new heart. You know what I mean? Right. I mean when you Oh read, how you know, I love that, thy law. Right, right, I meditate read, on it day right. and night. You, you read um David's attitude towards God's law and it's clear that he loved it. I mean it's it's right. David had a circumcised heart. He, you know, he may not have had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Didn't the way that it was. have it written the same way, but he had a desire to obey God. Right. And so, I mean, you see these things. And so, I mean, like, you know, you look at, you, was David under the law? 
You know what I mean? Like he wasn't and, under the condemnation of the law, right? but he was under and the so, he desired right. the righteousness of God, right. which is revealed in the law. And so I mean, it's like it's like the verses we were quoting where he says, "You you never desired burnt off. You never desired bulls to be killed for you." I mean, David's. I mean, David's writing this in the middle of the sacrifices, in the middle of all these things. He's writing it, and everybody who reads his words looks at it and goes, "Yep, that's true." God, this is not what God desired. And he still, you still offer the sacrifices. You still do these things, but it's just really important. I mean, this is where we're talking about there's no there's no perfect overlap here. There's no perfectly clean lines. God is doing these things and he's showing us things and they and they matter. They keep casting shadows forward. It's it's really it's it's hard to get away from. He's the same guy who in another psalm writes, Oh, how I love the law, it's my meditation all the day. I mean when he's writing that, what does he have? He basically has the books of Moses. There's no other Bible written. Maybe Job. I don't know if he has it. Right. But but he's like he, he's writing about the sacrificial system, and he's also the guy who says, "Oh, I know you don't that you you're not after a blood of bulls." Right. So, but he thinks about it all the day. And errors kind of on this subject are not limited to dispensationalism and. <laughs> <laughs> Of course they are. <laughs> so, and I think, um, and this is one where I think you start to run into some issues. And I don't think we want to spend too much time in this episode not bashing dispensationalism, but just compare what the Westminster Catechism, sorry, compare what the Westminster Confession and the Second London Baptist Confession say about the Mosaic Covenant and the Covenant of Grace, and see which one is dispensationalism light. You're, you're not going to give us a clue. <laughs> no, no clues. So we are saying the Reformed Baptist view. And the Reformed Baptist view is slightly different than the Westminster view. And the Westminster view definitely gives it a, a wider open door towards dispensational dispensationalism. Um, you know, the I think you quoted before from the Second London Baptist Confession where you said it's the full discovery of the covenant of grace. And that's more the picture that, that I see in Scripture. And the Westminster would say these are more these are more, each one is the co an expression that that covenant is the covenant of grace, which you have people like Darby who sets up dispensationalism and he is taking that language and he is perverting the language the way they meant it, but he perverts it in a way that he does come up with dispensationalism. Right, an administration of the covenant. Is kind right, of the administration, way. yes. So then the next dispensation is the dispensation of grace, which goes through the rapture according to since we don't really believe in the the rapture, we wouldn't we can't match this up with the covenants anymore because they kind of come up with their own thing that's just extra biblical. But the idea is is that that this is the parenthesis that that Charles said before that that God kind of does this aside to deal with the church because he, the church is kind of secondary. You're really good if you're a Jew. You know, you're really good if you're an Israelite. If you're just the bride of Christ, that's not that big of a deal. Is kind of their view. It's to I be mean, the friend of the bride, right? literally, right? Is that to be the friend of the bride is the big thing because David loved Jonathan more than he loved any woman. So therefore, to be the bride of Christ is secondary to be a friend of God like Jonathan's, like Jonathan was to David, is kind of their view. To be Christ's body is not. I mean, this. I mean, like, and literally, I mean, some of you are going to be going. This isn't taught in dispensationalism. I mean, you go back to T. B. Baines. Uh, you go back to, I mean, and Baines, Baines, I mean, you right, you go back to a lot of these earlier ones. I mean, and I think uh, Dallas Theological Seminary may have cleaned up some of this. I don't think this is taught that much anymore. 
but in the end, it still it still exists within it because of the view. How do you separate the fact that Israel, after the church is taken away, that the Israel that is left on the earth and the Israel that they see as kind of having this established and the Christ comes and reigns with, that that is separate from the body, the separate from the bride, and it is separate from the body of Christ, and that which one is better? Which one would it be better to be a part of? And so it's you can't get away from the problem. I mean, you use the term clean up. I'm not sure that they clean it up as much as they just go, we're not going to talk about it. Because I don't know that they've come up with arguments that actually solve the problem as much as they just go, we're not going to talk about it. They don't teach it. Anymore. What I right. mean is they don't yes. teach it. And that, that's kind of what I'm saying is that basically they just teach the results without teaching the, the thought pattern that got the to the results. Yeah. Because the reason that they went and with the whole thing with the friend of the bride is people were pushing them going, this clearly isn't biblical. And they went, no, it must be better to be a friend of the bride than the bride then. And so – People aren't pushing the the dispensational eschatology, so they're not having to come up with the the answers. And because they don't have to come up with the answers, they don't need to teach at seminaries. Right. And so what they do is teach the conclusion without teaching the thought process that got to the conclusion. But the thought process that gets to the conclusion is you have to say it is better to be the friend of the bride or the friend of the groom than it is to be the bride. And, and this starts to cause all sorts of problems with, like we talked about, why Christ came. He came to take two men and make them into one, to tear down the middle wall of separation. I mean, and so all of a sudden then you take the church out, and now there's this middle wall of separation again between Israel and the church. And so, I mean, you it's really have to confused. do some wrangling to put that back together. I mean, it's it's not— and it's, it's completely contrary to what Christ says in Jeremiah 3. He quotes from the law. And he says, they say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see. Where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness. And you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld and there has been no later rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. And he goes on and he says he's divorced Israel and he's warning Judah that he's going to divorce Judah. When he divorced Israel, he scattered them among Assyria. Assyria came in and wiped them out. Then he causes Rome to come in and scatter Judah. He causes Rome to come in and scatter Judah. This is the same thing. This is what he's warning about in Jeremiah 3. And the answer is he can't return to them again. That's what he said. But instead he goes, nope, it's just a parenthesis. That's what dispensationalism teaches. That's the eschatology, that he will return return to Israel again. And the Bible says he won't, that it would be to violate his own law. It would be the land would be greatly polluted if he did that. So the the covenantal view of this is that in the in in through Christ, we now have the full discovery. We have as much understanding as we will have until we see God face to face. So it says in Hebrews 10, 16 through 18, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And so God is saying, This is done. I'm going to write the law in the heart. The issue before was you write it on tablets of stone. It doesn't work. You just let men come up with it. It doesn't work. You do you appoint authorities, that doesn't work. You let men do what's right in their own eyes, that doesn't work. 
And now he goes, this is what's going to work. Not that all those other covenants didn't work. They worked to do what they were supposed to do. And the new covenant, the fullest expression of the covenant of great, does what it's supposed to do, which is to actually show it is through the power of God and through the power of Christ that we're saved. And there's no other way to the Father except through the Son. And you, you were pointing out all those limitations, but along the way, he's also giving all those promises. Yes. You know, the there's a promise given to Eve in the midst of a curse. Mm-hmm. There's a promise given about the seed. And, and I don't know, does that make any sense until Jesus actually comes and you see, oh, okay, this is what the bruising on the heel is. This is what the crushing of the head is. You know, there's the promises made to Abraham. And then Paul tells us, hey, it's not actually physical Abraham. That's not the seed. It's it's seed, not seeds. You know, so and it all along the way, it's like all of those promises and and it's all if you want an encapsulation of it, it's kind of that road to Emmaus moment where Jesus has he's he's disguised himself well, he's closed their eyes so that the disciples he's walking with can't tell that it's him, and he's telling them, Here's why all these things had to be, and he's telling them from the scriptures. He goes through the law and the prophets to tell them this is what it's always all been about. So, yeah, there's there were those limitations that were pointing towards it must be Christ. But then there were also those promises that finally, you know, oh, those are all about Christ too. And, you know, not to bash John MacArthur, but John MacArthur's the reason that he holds the dispensational eschatology is he goes, but those promises were to Israel. So Israel has to receive the benefit of the promises even though it creates this whole convoluted thing that is very contrary to what what was clearly revealed in Daniel, what's clearly revealed in other places in Scripture, what's clearly revealed throughout Scripture that the increase of his government and peace will have no end. And yet all of a sudden, you know, even though he's ruling with a rod of iron, somehow he loses control of everything. I mean, it's just all these things that are so contrary, but you go, but the promise was to Israel. That's where... That's where so many things happen that that ends up driving people to accept an eschatology as they don't go. No, those promises were a revelation of the promises of God. And is it physical Israel or spiritual Israel? Well, we know for Abraham it was spiritual Abraham. We know for Jews it was spiritual Jews. That's what it says in Romans. And so now all of a sudden for Israel, well, actually in Romans 9 it says it's spiritual Israel. You get the pattern, but they go, no, it's the dispensation. And even when Jesus shows up as a baby, the angels say, peace to all men. And and Simeon looks at him and says, oh, this is a light to the Gentiles. I mean, from, from the moment Christ steps into the earth, the picture is this is not about the Jews. I mean, and it's, it's, it's really important because I think in a lot of this, the, the hermeneutic, you have to make the spiritual not have substance because there's this part of it, you know, they, when you say you're, you're spiritualizing that, what they mean is, is you're making it not real. And there's a real problem with that. I mean, there's just, I mean, because Jesus Christ was resurrected bodily. Jesus Christ has already been resurrected bodily. And you're saying he who we are reckoned in isn't the real Israel. And there's a real problem with that. And so, I mean, and you just, I mean, you just run into so many issues. And I mean, and this is where when you, you say interpreting it literally, I would argue we are interpreting it literally 
we literally mean that this shadow of the temple is not going to be the temple, that any just building made out of stone would be insubstantial compared to the temple that he says he's building. And that is a fundamental disconnect. It is a fundamental difference. And that's what so much of the argument gets to be about, is what has he been saying all along? What has been the reality of what he's doing? And you end up loving shadows more than substance and, because he is the substance. And Jesus, Jesus plays with that with the, the Jews all over the place while he's actually on earth. He looks at them and says, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood and gives no qualifiers. He doesn't explain. It. It's just like, here, deal with this. Or he says to them, hey, I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. Doesn't qualify it. And, and until later you know, tells, tells his disciples, but it's just, but he's, he's playing with that same thing. If I know you're going to interpret this, I know you're going to think literally because you don't have any understanding of the way things really are. Right. And it's not like it wasn't true before. It wasn't like God didn't say these things are supposed to be interpreted spiritually before. I mean, there's so much pattern of it in the old Testament and yet they turn around and go, no, it has to be physical. It's just a misinterpretation. And it's really it's it's and I think I think sometimes physical versus spiritual is the wrong thing. It's heavenly versus earthly. You know what I mean? And it's you know what I mean it's the I mean it, I mean I mean it's both. I mean because you have to lay them both over top of each other. You have to you have to bring them together. Well, like earth that, and heaven becoming one in a sense. Well, it said carnal man cannot understand spiritual things, and so that's the issue. Is yep. because it's carnal. If you're carnal and you don't understand spiritual things, then you have somebody that spiritualizes it and you go, well, spiritualize it, that, that makes it not real because right. to them, and I'm not accusing everybody of, of being carnal, that, but the reality Schofield is was. Schofield definitely was. <laughs> and some of these men definitely were manipulating people for the sake of power and for the sake of money and all these other things. And for them, the spiritual is ephemeral. There is nothing substantial about it because they're just carnal. Right. And if you're just carnal, you can't possibly understand spiritual things. Now we're kind of in dispensational eschatology because we're talking about you know the sixth and the seventh dispensation. They basically say things are supposed to get worse and worse, and then Christ will come, and then he'll rule for a thousand years. But but that's not what it says that he's doing with his bride. He's cleansing his bride. He's washing her in the water of the word. It says in Ephesians 4, 13 through 16, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God says, we're going to grow in knowledge. He says, we're going to grow in understanding. We're going to grow in obedience. We're going to grow in love. We're going to grow in all these things. And dispensational goes, no, it can't. Dispensationalism goes, no, this has to be a failure too. Or that has to be spiritual. <laughs> in, you know what I mean? It in can't, some it sense, can't, but they usually end up rejecting it. The world. But it can't have substance in the world, and it can't even have substance in believers, because in the end, they have to get worse too. Because evil, evil men wax worse and worse, right? Which isn't, isn't which, talking about the world, right? It's talking about individuals. 
And so we just, they have to, again, to put in this dispensation, even though we have a full discovery of what God's doing, he tore down the middle wall of separation. He's going to unify all things in heaven and earth in him, right? It says in Ephesians 1, and they go, no, 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 no. He's going to come, he's going to rapture the church, and then he'll do something with Israel because there's still the promises to Israel. That's just not biblical. There's just no biblical basis for that. And then the last dispensation is the millennial kingdom, which is, you know, Christ will physically sit on earth and reign for a thousand years. And he will reestablish Israel, he'll reestablish the temple, which what's the purpose of the temple to kill animals, but yet... I don't think they think he'll be killing animals. So yeah, I mean, it's no, just, they, they do. They say they think he'll be killing animals, but it'll be a memorial. It'll be a memorial of those days before. Is the the most that's the most consistent so, view that I've heard. So even though there's no reason to shed blood, he'll just shed. They'll shed blood just for the fun of it. For the for a, for a memorial is the is the argument the best argument I've heard. And I mean, and it's and it, it denies the fact that he's reigning now. That scripture says he's reigning now. That he's reigning now, and and he will reign from now until the, his enemies have been defeated, and then the last enemy that be defeated is death. I mean, so I mean, there's just I mean, if he's if he's not reigning now, then when's he going to start reigning? But scripture says he is reigning, and it, I mean, there's just real. We know when he ascends, right? It says in Matthew twenty eight eighteen, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." So if he has all authority, when is he? Right. What more is he going to do to reign? And scripture says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I mean, and there's so many scriptures that talk about what that means. I mean, it's it, again, it's a denial of the spiritual reality that God says of what He is already doing, what He is, what He was planning on doing, and how He will work out His will in the and world. And just to think about how physical it is, they're saying Christ cannot reign unless He's physically standing on the earth. And, the and that's as carnal as you can get. And the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110 that says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. The New, the New Testament writers consistently go back to Psalm 110 and say, this explains what, this explains it. This is what's going on is I, Christ is waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Right, in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. When he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Christ has to reign in heaven. He is reigning, and he will not return until he comes to defeat the last enemy, which is death. I mean, this is what the scriptures clearly teach, but yet, they're coming up with these dispensational eschatology that says he's going to rapture the church. Where, where does that come in? Where does that come into Psalm 110 where it says that he's ruling with a rod now? In Psalm 2, it says that he's ruling with a rod of iron. It says in Psalm 110 that he's ruling with a rod right now. In Psalm 2, it says that he'll rule with a rod of iron. And it says that that was fulfilled in Acts, I think, 3 or 4. It says that the, Psalm 2 has happened. Christ is ruling, and yet we want to keep going. The majority of the professing Christians in the United States and most countries in the world want to go, but yet he's not really ruling. Well, that is just a really twisted view, and it's missing the power of the covenant of grace. Because the covenant of grace is, I did make a covenant with the world and not just with man. 
and he will redeem the world. And he's using his church to be the first fruits of creation so that that creation's groaning together until the revelation of the sons of God or the sons of man. It's it's all these pictures that they want to discard so that they can have this twisted interpretation that you throw away scriptures. And I think we all know why they want to throw away scriptures. The reason that people want to throw away scriptures is because they don't want to be told what to do. And scriptures are about being told by God what to do. And people don't want to be told what to do by God. So they go, let's make dispensation. That stuff's gone away. We're not under the law anymore. Sin, under grace. sin is lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. So, I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, we're in the middle in our church of going through Leviticus and we're reading all these different sacrifices. And when you do a dispensational view of scripture, I mean, there's, we did one episode on the atonement and I don't think, I don't think we spent enough time in that episode talking about how there's all these sacrifices that if you don't tie them together, you don't understand that Christ was accomplishing many different things by his death, that his death wasn't just for paying the penalty for our sins in the future, that it was for actually accomplishing these things in the world that you've talked about. And these, and so all of a sudden you cut off the picture of where in Hebrews it says that the Old Testament is, you know, is a parable, that these, these pictures of the tabernacle and these pictures of the sacrifices, that these are a parable, that, that leprosy and all these different things that all of a sudden the purpose of them is lost. That what God is going to do through them, that Jesus Christ, that it, it's that basically saying that God wants the sacrifices, right? That He wants the blood of bulls and goats, and David said He doesn't, right? So they and have so that, to be for something else, <laughs> right? They have to be for something else. There has to be another reason. There has to be another, and it's for these pictures. If you have eyes of faith, then when you look back at all of those laws that would have been oppressive to do, you can say, "Oh, this is gospel." There's the shape of this. When I look at the burnt offering, this is telling me something about the nature of me and something about the nature of God and something about the nature of hell. And then when I look at the peace offering, again, this is about the nature of God and the nature of me and the nature of how you approach God. And when you look at God's generosity to his people. And when you look at the furniture of the tabernacle and the the way it was constructed and the order of things, and again, it's like, oh, this is God showing us things about himself. Again, just fitting about in with heaven. Their, about yeah, exactly. Things things that he had kept secret, he decided he was going to start doling out. And some of those things he's giving you the pictures before you get the explanation. You had to wait for Jesus to come along and say, This is what it's always meant. But but if you have eyes of faith, then the entirety of the law is actually this picture of the gospel. If you don't have eyes of faith, then you know what the gospel is. I mean it's the stumbling block. Jesus is just more law for you. It's just more condemnation for you. God did not give us his word to divide it. He gave us his word because we need every sentence in it. Every sentence is about instructing us for what we should be doing to serve him, for the good works that he would have us to do. And so when dispensationalism divides it, we just need to recognize how how contrary that is to what God is doing. God has given us revelation over time so that we can grow and we can have more understanding and we can understand what he's doing in the world and we can see his glory more and more. And when we go, let's just throw away this, let's throw away the law, let's throw away this section of scripture, instead of saying, no, this is for us. God says that that every word in scripture 
a lot of it, the prophets had no idea what they were writing. They were writing it for us. Dispensationalism says they weren't, and the Bible says they were. The Bible's right. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching.